0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Just like us, the Victorians loved their pets. And this didn't just end when the pets died. In the 19th century, the first pet cemeteries appeared in Britain. Dr Eric Turrany of Newcastle University has been studying them. And our content director, David Musgrove, called him to find out what they can tell us about Victorian attitudes to animals.
1: Right. So, Eric, you've been running a, uh, a fascinating research project into uh, pet cemeteries from the Victorian period to the present, uh, which you've just published uh, an interesting article about it in the journal Antiquity. What have you been doing? Can you just give us an outline of of, of your research?
2: Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for uh, for having me here. Um, yeah, I've as as an archaeologist, I've long recognized the potential of cemeteries to record different aspects of our past. and historians and archaeologists, as you may know, uh, have used human cemeteries to reconstruct social relationships between people in the past, local sort of um, demographics, various research questions. And nobody's ever thought to look at pet cemeteries to see how, to what extent they record human-animal relationships and how our relationships with pets have changed over time. So I just thought we're going to be kind of cool to to record pet cemeteries over the past hundred or so years and see what the changes are in our relationship that is documented uh, via these gravestones.
1: So... Tell me about pet cemeteries. Where, When do they first start to appear and where?
2: So that it's surprisingly a recent phenomenon in terms of the grand scheme of history. Um, the first pet cemetery in the UK, and as far as I could tell, the first pet cemetery in sort of Western Europe is in London in Hyde Park, first appearing in 1881. Uh, it's an interesting story when it first began a... Uh, the owners of a, a Maltese terrier named Cherry uh, approached the gatekeeper at London's Hyde Park and uh, you know said that, unfortunately, Cherry passed away and they would love to bury Cherry in the, the park where he loved to spend the most of his time. And the uh, gatekeeper, Mr. Winbridge, he uh, agreed and he actually lived in Hyde Park. He, as a gatekeeper, he had a little... A private house um, with a private garden, just close to uh, Victoria Gate, and he let um, them bury Cherry in his private back garden. And a few a, a year later, the a Yorkshire Terrier by the name of Prince, who was actually a royal Yorkshire Terrier, he was the the dog of the uh, Duke of Cambridge at the time. Uh, he also died, and he was buried in the back, Mr. Winbridge's back garden. And uh, within the next two decades, actually, um, we would see over, oof, at least over a thousand pets buried in Mr. Winbridge's back garden. Um, and that cemetery uh, was mostly closed by the 1910s, uh, borrowing a few random burials here and there, uh, but is still, is still there today. And uh, there's no public access to the pet cemetery. It's a a very, it's in a very fragile state. There's lots of mini stones everywhere, but you can see it through the fences, through the bushes um, from Bayswater Road, um, just running north of of London's Hyde Park. So uh, that was the first pet cemetery in Britain. And it spawned the creation of many other uh, public pet cemeteries throughout the country throughout the 20th century. So, uh,
1: so it was a, a kind of a late Victorian uh, initiation, and, and was it um, this this royal um, interest, this 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 early royal uh, pet, did that sort of spark interest to people? You know, think, mm-hmm. oh well, if 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 the royal family are doing it, then uh, then
2: that, that's good for us. There's definitely influence from the aristocracy at the time. So, while the Pet Cemetery in London is the first public pet cemetery, there were multiple pet cemeteries cropping up throughout 19th century Britain in the country homes and and big estate gardens that you see throughout the country. So uh, in royal places like um, Sandringham, where Queen Victoria buried her dogs, uh, but also various uh, uh, elite households throughout the country uh, had their own personal pet cemeteries in their back gardens. So there's a question of whether or not these cemeteries influenced the first public pet cemetery in, in Westminster, uh, which itself, you know, it's, it's not a working class cemetery. It, it's a, it's a cemetery by the the wealthy and the elite living in London. There's definitely a sense of, of influence coming from the aristocracy at the time.
1: So what, um, You've, you've looked at the, the, the memorials that, uh, that exist and, and remain in these cemeteries. What sort of epitaphs and, and memorials were, were, were put there?
2: Right, so the, the first gravestones that you see, the 19th century ones, they tend to be quite plain. They're very simple. They're all the same shape and size. They're very small. And many of them just uh, have the name of, of the pet, you know, Fido, and uh, a date of death, maybe, there are a few that have epitaphs, and these epitaphs are generally quite, um, they're quite simple as well. They refer to Victorian values, you know, what makes a good dog. So there, there's references to fidelity and obedience, loyalty. These these truly, the, these values that are the core of Victorian society, and this is what Victorians express, of a a good boy, a good dog. And uh, so you you see a lot of that. You also see a lot of references to the metaphor of sleep um, to represent death. And this is a common metaphor used in Victorian cemeteries at the time as well. So in in human cemeteries I'm talking about, uh, where the metaphor of sleep, which we still use today things like rest in peace, here lies, so-and-so um, also influence the shape of the, and, and the overall look of the cemetery and of the gravestones. So the, the gravestones or the, the plots mimic a, the shape of a bed. You have your, your uh, gravestone, your headstone, which mimics the headboard. And then usually you have a, a lo- an outline of the plot with a curb or a stone and maybe a, a footstone resembling the, the footboard of a bed. And these references to, to people having gone to sleep. So this continues into the pet cemeteries at the time. So we're seeing it in both places. And it's an interesting metaphor because it, it suggests an impermanence to sleep. It suggests a, a reawakening perhaps, and hopefully a a, re, a reunion between the survivors and those who have died, Um, which I think is the interesting point to make about the Victorian pet cemeteries is that very few gravestones, other than this this metaphor for sleep, very few gravestones suggest a reunification in heaven. There are a handful of epitaphs that will say things like, um, could I think we would meet again, it would lighten half my pain. Or uh, this nice little um, epitaph from Wee Bobbitt, who died in 1901, uh, which reads, uh, when our lonely lives are over and our spirits from this earth shall roam, we hope he'll be there waiting to give us a welcome home. So there's this element of, of hope of a reunion, but not a direct statement of, my you know th- my pet is is going to heaven because the big argument at, or big argument at the time of whether or not animals had souls and it would have been quite controversial to to state so on a, a such a permanent monument like a gravestone
1: so that was that was uh, the next question i was going to ask you is um, kind of what was what was the church position if if the church had a position uh, on on these on these cemeteries and burials, because as you said, it was the generally accepted uh, position, uh, Christian position at the time, that animals didn't have souls.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah, the the church has always, uh, or the various churches have always been vague on the matter. But what's clear is that society, or the, the prevailing society at the time, was not very comfortable with the idea of of giving the same. Christian burial rites to animals as they were uh, people. And you see this in the location of pet cemeteries in this country, the, the early ones especially. They, they are not located on consecrated grounds. They are located in uh, public spaces, civic spaces, or on private land. And the, 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 the gravestones like the ones at Hyde Park are very careful about the religious connotations that they make on the gravestone. So there's no, there's no religious symbolism. Um, I only saw two crosses in, uh almost 500 gravestones there. And there's no, um, yeah, there, there's, there's no specific mention of reunification in heaven. There were even reports, uh, or I, I came across a newspaper report from Edinburgh in 1885 around the same time that the first public pet cemetery was was being used in, in London that detailed a cat's funeral so that this this woman in Edinburgh had just lost her cat and she organized a full funeral a procession and all and a, a burial in the local churchyard and so Throughout the procession, apparently, a, a large crowd had gathered and were, were yelling at her, at the cat, about the uh, indecency of it all, um, and were really quite angry that this cat was receiving a burial in a, in a Christian graveyard. And after the cat was buried, the crowd gathered in the graveyard, um, excavated the cat, smashed the coffin, and removed it from the from the from the graveyard, and I, you can imagine how this would be quite a traumatic experience for the pet owners. And it, it's it's therefore not surprising to see that people are actually quite hesitant at what they write on the gravestones of of their animals. So the fact that many of these gravestones in the nineteenth century don't don't mention a reunification in heaven is not necessarily a reflection of the belief of those individuals burying the cats, but, of, but more of a reflection of where society is at the time and what people are comfortable saying publicly.
1: So your research uh, into, into these cemeteries is uh, takes us uh, uh, beyond the Victorian period into, into the 20th century. Have you identified uh, changing attitudes to this and uh, a sense that um, uh, pet owners expect to see their, their pets reuni- re, uh, joined with them again in, in some sort of afterlife?
2: Yeah. So I looked at a large sample of gravestones up until the 1990s, um, various different cemeteries across the UK. And one of the most notable changes as time goes on is that beginning around the 1940s, sort of after World War II, you start to see crosses everywhere. So In that big 19th century sample that I looked at, almost 500 gravestones, there were only two that had the symbol of the cross on it. Of the about 500 or so gravestones I looked at sort of post-1945, there were over 100 gravestones with crosses. And the epitaphs are also revealing of there's no there's no longer a hope of reunification in heaven but there's a certainty of it right one gravestone um, read god bless until we meet again so there there's certainty there um which is I think again reflective of the fact that society was no longer maybe, was no longer upset about the idea or maybe no longer cared about, whether or not someone believed their their animals were going to heaven or not. Um, So people felt maybe a bit more comfortable in an increasingly secular society to publicly claim that their their pets were going to a heaven and that they would be reunited.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: The epitaphs that you read can be quite uh, gushing and effusive in terms of the the qualities that they impart on the animals. You know, one wrote, uh, This is the most intelligent, faithful, gentle, sweet tempered, and affectionate dog that ever lived. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed.
1: Right, so that it's a fascinating project looking at these, uh, at these, these grave markers. I just wanted to sort of broaden this out a bit and, and try and understand uh, a bit more about. Victorian and and earlier um if possible attitudes okay. to pets. I think you said uh that, that it's sort of, it's generally accepted that pets become a thing in the Victorian period. I was reading a book about medieval pets the other day and and there is and the author of that um you know suggested that uh, that in the in the middle ages people did have pets, yeah. dogs, cats, squirrels, monkeys, weasels, all sorts of things um she found evidence for. So so uh Does that kind of boil down to what the definition of a pet is?
2: Definitely. So pet keeping as we understand it today, that's the sort of, that role that is familiar to us in today's society, Um, in earnest began sort of late 18th, early 19th century, so slightly before the Victorian period. Before that, people had pets, they had dogs, they had cats. The relationship was slightly different to that which we had today, or it's suspected that it's a much more, the, the, the animal didn't occupy that central position in the family household like they became to occupy in the 19th century. The animals often had other roles as opposed to just companions. Um, cats and small dogs, for example, we were good at, at mousing or ratting, getting rid of the vermin. You had uh, work dogs as well that you know worked on the farm. Uh, maybe provided security, the relationship was simply just not the same as it is today, where it's it might be purely a a loving sort of companionship within the, the actual boundaries of the house.
1: So, so when when would you say does Britain become a nation of pet keepers?
2: <laughs> I, this has been widely debated by uh, historians. I, I think most agree. That period of, of late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, where where we start to invest a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of our um, a lot of feelings really into pets. Many argue that the Victorian period is a watershed in our relationship with pets, in that we start to consider the animal's feelings, the the pets' well being. It's when we see the arrival of the RSPCA. Uh, Various animal shelters get founded for the first time, taking care of, taking in strays. Uh, Various new laws dedicated to the protection and well-being of animals start to appear. It's also when you start to see uh, dog breeding and animal breeding, um, uh, like we understand today. So the the pet breed standards that we know today were all very recently developed in the 19th century. Um, Victorian period is also a time of great conflict, between our relationships with um, animals, so while you you have this increasing interest in protecting animal welfare and well-being, you also have a massive rabies scare, which results in the euthanasia of many many stray dogs. So actually, there's evidence that a lot of these early animal shelters that appeared in the nineteenth century actually advocated for the destruction of strays because of the the rabies scare. Um, and actually were protecting the wealthy pet owners whose dogs were accounted for, if you will, if they weren't strays. It's also a time where you see an increased interest in science and the progression of science, and a lot of research was carried out via vivisection. So you have this push for scientific progress and scientific research, but also an anti-vivisection movement, uh, arguing for the rights of animals and, and animal welfare, and of course that one uh, uh, won, and we we now think of scientific research much much differently. So it's it's a it's a time of it's a time of great change in the r- way we envision our relationships with animals and the way we consider the role of animals within our lives.
1: And um, was there? Um much of a economic or sort of social stratification to this? Or, oh, definitely. Or, or where does it stand?
2: It, it, definitely, and especially in terms of the pets that we see, you know, archaeologically through the pet cemeteries. The pets being buried in the 19th century, these are the pets of wealthy owners. That's not to say that working class or, or the poor didn't have pets, but that relationship was probably different based on diff, uh, the the different means of those who who were able to take care of animals. Definitely, you know, wealthy, wealthier people were able to afford the luxuries of burying pets. Um, so the Hyde Park Pet Cemetery was created at a time when many living in London were actually living in extreme poverty and themselves doomed to paupers' graves. They couldn't afford their their own gravestones, whereas the the elite were. Burying animals in, in with nice little marble gravestones and little graveyards, um, that changes through time, of course, as more and more people can afford to to keep pets in a similar way, um, pets as a as a as a mean of of companionship alone. So, so yeah, so, the, so that sense
1: of of uh, of the wealthy being able to bury their pets in in, uh, in expensive uh, graves and and the uh, and the less well off not being able to or not being able to afford to have pets at all that so that does highlight mm-hmm. sort of just the innate discrepancies in Victorian society, I guess.
2: So, while the the those who couldn't afford to bury their pets in public pet cemeteries and and pay to erect these gravestones in their memory. Uh, up until the the sort of mid to late 19th century, one of the, you know, people still had dogs and cats. These animals still died when their time came. And usually they were buried. They might have been buried in a back garden, uh, but actually most of the time they were simply buried in the rubbish heaps of, of the households, so in, in the middens behind the house, thrown in with the compost, if you will, um, or even thrown into the rivers. And for those who sort of lacked funds, the a a, a an animal carcass, if you will, uh, was a means of, of making money as well. They could be sold to nackers yards uh, um, for skins or uh, rendered for for animal feed. Um, so there was there was a there, there was a potential profit to be had once your 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 dog or cat had died. Um, that doesn't mean you know if, if these animals were sold in our Yards or to or just give, thrown in the, in the the household rubbish it doesn't mean that they weren't cared for in life or they weren't they didn't have a special relationship with the with the owners in life it just means the attitudes towards animal bodies after death were a bit different than what they are today
1: so, uh, just a couple more questions. What I was, I was your, your period um, of, of research extends through the 20th century. It reminded me of that terrible event um, at the start of the Second World War. That the, the, the I think it's called the Great Pet Massacre when um, uh, hundreds of thousands of pets were, were put down because there was a uh, sort of government advice to say that people should do that because of the of the looming threat of war, uh, which sounds like a, a fairly terrible event. I just wondered, does that, did, did you see anything of that in, in your research?
2: Yeah, I didn't come across any gravestones or graveyards associated with that event. Um, it, it hasn't come through. I think one thing to... One of the, the things to realize when looking at pet cemeteries is that actually they represent a very small proportion of animals who have died. Um, most people, as you can imagine, just bury their animals in their back gardens. And, and that, that continues today. And then from the 1980s onwards, most people um, actually cremate their pets and maybe creep the, the cremation, the, cre- the, the cremains around their house or they might spread the ashes somewhere. Uh, people still use pet cemeteries, but I estimate, and this is just a rough estimate, it's only about 1% of pets who are who are buried in pet cemeteries.
1: Um, and broadly speaking, in terms of the animals, we're talking dogs and cats here, are we?
2: Yeah, mostly 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 dogs, especially in the early 19th century cemeteries. The the Hyde Park Pet Cemetery in a uh, an 1893 newspaper article about it was referred to as a cemetery for dogs. So it was mostly dogs. There were a few more cats. And as you progress into the 20th century, you you see a lot more cats. Maybe dogs represent about 60 to 70% of burials and cats, mostly the rest. The problem is though, that you can't, the few gravestones actually tell you what species is buried. It's just the name and dates or a little epitaph. So sometimes you get names like Fido or Rex and you think, yeah, that's probably a dog, but it can be a cat as well. Um, There were a few gravestones of other species I came across. So in Hyde Park, there was one dedicated to budgie, which I imagine was a a budgie, hopefully. Uh, There was a a tortoise I came across, and this one specifically said it was a tortoise. And there are reports that the Hyde Park Pet Cemetery includes a monkey, but I haven't seen any historical documents for this. And I did find a gravestone for an individual named monkey, but I suspect it was a dog with the name of monkey as opposed to an actual monkey.
1: Right. To to wrap up, um, uh, I suppose the general idea that people in Britain have, that British people... Are animal lovers. We we love animals and we and we treat them well. Now I don't know how far that is true, um, and I don't know whether your research sort of informs us on that or informs us on the origins of that viewpoint. Do pet cemeteries exist in other countries apart from Britain? I'm sure they do, and and does it help us to understand this this general view we have that uh, that that we British are are animal lovers?
2: Well, definitely there are pet cemeteries around the world, and as soon as that public pet cemetery appeared in Britain in 1881. You start seeing pet cemeteries appear throughout Western Europe, uh, in America. So in France, the first one was in 1899 in Paris. Um, again, in uh, late 19th century in uh, New York state, they had the first one, the Hartsdale Pet Cemetery. But it's not just in sort of Western European countries. Um, Japanese have uh, the, the the Buddhist cemeteries in Japan, have a long tradition of burying pets um, and for them there was never a, a an argument of whether or not pets had souls because or animals had souls because they did and you see their pet cemeteries connected to human cemeteries either they there's a, a human and an animal section within the same cemetery or that they're they're buried together um, and lots of research has been done on the japanese pet cemeteries to reconstruct their relationships um, with animals as well. So, but in
1: terms of that question However, about whether the, the British are animal lovers and, and how far this uh, helps us understand
2: that? One constant that you see uh, in the British pet cemeteries, whether you're looking at gravestones from the 1890s or the 1990s, is how is evidence for how strong that relationship between person and animal was. The epitaphs that you read can be quite uh, gushing and effusive in terms of the, the qualities that they impart on the animals. You know, One wrote, uh, this is the most intelligent, faithful, gentle, sweet-tempered and affectionate dog that ever lived. Um, let me read you a few here. Uh, Jane, who was a a lovely little Blenheim dog, um, her owners wrote, uh, she brought sunshine into our lives, but took it away with her. And when Chum passed away in 1900, their owners wrote, uh, so lonely without my doggy. Another wrote, uh, he asked for so little and gave so much. So you can really get a sense of the emotions that people were going through when they were erected erecting these gravestones. And that really tells us how important the act of burial and commemoration was and still is. It's very much a part of the grieving process and it's the same for for human cemeteries the the burial and the erecting of the gravestone is an important part of the grieving process and it's about it's more about, those who survive than it is about the individuals being buried. People felt it was quite difficult to express their grief for the loss of their animals. And that's also remained constant from the Victorian era through to today. You know, many feel a shame, a sense of shame even at the amount of grief they're feeling because society is telling them, society might not be as empathetic about the loss of a pet as opposed to the loss of a, a human relationship. Yet for many, the relationship established with an animal might be as close or even closer than that established with um, any humans. So one of the the other big trends that I was able to notice by comparing the late 19th century pet cemeteries to sort of uh, late 20th century ones is that in the late 19th century, pets are referred to as either pets or as friends and companions. Whereas when you move into the 20th century, they start to become members of the family. You see the uh, um, appearance of the family surname on the gravestone, sort of beginning in the, the 1940s. And it's standard practice when erecting a gravestone to write down the names of those, the survivors, if you will, those erecting the gravestone in memory of the deceased. And that you see this on human cemeteries, you see this on pet cemeteries. In the 19th century, people would leave their initials, or use words like um, "your loving mistress" um, or "your guardian." Fast forward to the 1940s, and people, instead of leaving their initials, they say "love, mummy and daddy" or "mummy." So there's, it speaks. It definitely speaks to how people are seeing their relationship with animals during the, their life, during the animal's life, and the role of animals within the family home. So no longer friends and companions, but members of the family.
1: Well, I'm sure your your research will speak to anyone who, who owns a dog or any sort of pet. So uh, thank you very much for talking us
2: through it. Uh, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: That was Dr. Eric Turini. Lecturer in Historical Archaeology at the University of Newcastle. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on women's experiences since 1950.